I am James Bond. So for the benefit of listeners, basically, there's this running joke in the office that um, John's John's girlfriend gets really annoyed at him because he likes to think that he's James Bond. Um, but I why mean, that's do not, as... that's not that's not quite an accurate characterization. Uh, 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 it's the most loserish. <laughs> that is even more loserish what? than no. news that Femi played a date in May 2020 on an electric keyboard that he plugged <laughs> into his car. Now that is that is sad. That is tragic. But at least he's not calling himself James Bond. <laughs> ah, well, did any of you guys have two martinis to want for the podcast? I don't think so. <laughs> Welcome to the Pin Factory, Gavin Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my three wonderful colleagues, our Director of Strategy, John McDonald, Director of Operations, Morgan Schonemeyer, and Head of Programs, Daniel Pryor. In this week's Christmas episode, we'll be discussing our highs and lows of a tumultuous 2021. So Morgan, let's start with you. What was one of your highs this year? Um, So I think a high for most of us would be the vaccine rollout. This was something that, um, you know, if you ask me in 2020, where we would be in vaccine, I would probably have been way more pessimistic and and said, we wouldn't really see one um, anytime soon, but we had a vaccine in December of 2020 and 2021 really saw like the, the uptake of the vaccine. Um, we did some great research on it run by you, Matthew, obviously. Um, and I think that was just a really great moment for the UK as a scientific country, um, as a country that, you know, does their duty and realizes the, the benefits of vaccines. I had hoped it would set us up for a position where we wouldn't need any more lockdowns obviously <laughs> developments of the last few weeks maybe be mooting that but we can still talk about the vaccine rollout as a real high a lot of lives were saved yeah i think it's it's very much been a roller coaster emotions with the, the the vaccine rollout um the uk has now done quite an extraordinary 126 million 533,737 vaccines at the, at the time of recording and we're approaching around 800 900,000 booster shots a day. Of course, we were told there was no way that you could produce a vaccine um, in, in any reasonable time period. It would take years and years to get the development done. We got not one vaccine, not two vaccines, but a whole range of extraordinarily highly effective vaccines um, from the mRNA ones from Moderna and Pfizer to the Vector vaccine from, from Oxford um, in combo with, with AstraZeneca. Um, but of course, it hasn't always been that smooth, though, has it, Daniel, with, with the vaccine. But at the start of the year, the rollout was running extremely slowly. Um, we, we saw a lot of criticism, particularly of the AstraZeneca vaccine from the EU, um, when it, it seems quite bizarre looking back now, but a lot of claims about it not being effective and then it, it causing all these dangers and issues, not from cranks, but from people like Emmanuel Macron and even some leaks from the, the German ministry at the time. Um, do you think that's in, in some ways undermined the vaccine and, and the success, the, the fact that we, we saw so much pessimism and so much initial slowness? I think there are obviously a lot of hiccups throughout the year in, in various ways. And you look at the current booster rollout and the fact that that was being called for by us amongst others several months ago um, before we were even faced with this particular Omicron variant coming online. But at the same time, I think I was walking um, through Westminster a couple of weeks back and there was a huge queue over uh, over the bridge with people queuing up for their walk-in booster shots. And my first reaction was obviously, you know, isn't it terrible that people are queuing for that? But then it kind of dawned on me just the sheer scale of the vaccine rollout is something that 
I hadn't really appreciated until that point. The fact that, you know, the UK population, tens of millions of people, the fact that the kind of industrial infrastructure, we're blessed to live in a country where that exists and we can deliver a vaccine at such short notice to so many people um, is is something that I'm incredibly thankful for. Uh, And it's just amazing the sheer numbers of people that we're able to, to get vaccines to and increasingly get the booster shots to. Obviously, as you say, many hiccups along the way and things that could have been done differently and got better. But overall, I think uh, Morgan's right. This is a story of success and something to be extremely pleased about overall. So John, a lot of the discourse around the vaccine has very much focused on this is a new model for big state, big science, collaboration and you know we wouldn't of course be here without operation warp speed in the us or the vaccine task force in the uk pre-investing quite substantially into the vaccines and therefore it it shows itself out as a a good industrial model for the future of of society do you buy much of that no i can't say that i do um i mean i'm sure there's there's a lot of sort of state and and private sector partnership on on the vaccine rollout but it doesn't mean that we need to sort of carry on with this rolling forward of the frontiers of the state in perpetuity i think it's uh we're sort of approaching the time where we need to kind of start dialing that back a bit especially for the sake of businesses but yeah it was it was it was really nice actually uh at the start of the year to be involved with talking to the COVID recovery group and and talking to people in government about the vaccine rollout. I I feel like it was the most connected to kind of the government and and kind of helping out there that that I've ever felt doing work here. So that was kind of a high point for me as well. Yeah, James James Lawson, who I um, co-wrote a paper about the 3rd or 4th of January about how to accelerate the vaccine rollout with uh, Johnny Kitson as well, um, has gone through the list of our about 20 recommendations that we put together. And I think at least half of them, if not more, have been um, taken up by the government. Things like 24-hour vaccine centres and mobile vaccine vaccinations and ensuring that um, people are offered um, spare shots at the end of the day. A lot of different ideas we threw out there in order to speed it up. Um, about half of them have been taken up by government. I, yeah, I think the important thing to remember on the, the kind of political narrative around vaccines is that the vaccines were a very narrow and specific goal, that it did actually make a lot of sense for the government to put a lot of money, not necessarily into the, the research and development, although there was a lot of money in that Pfizer managed to handle without any government money in research and development produced one of the best shot, one of the best vaccinations. What the key point here, though, is the fact that in order to speed it up, in order to accelerate it, um, the government did have to take on some of the risk of the manufacturing, just the huge costs that, that come from producing a vaccination or any kind of medication and getting it through the regulatory process. And if that process fails, then you normally don't want to put money into manufacturing in advance. But in the, in the case of a global pandemic, it doesn't make sense for the state to step in. I don't think that's necessarily comparable to other situations. We don't normally have quite a narrow and specific goal. We don't normally know what the government wants on and should achieve. But let's move on to a low light. I'm going to throw to you, John, here. What was a low light of, for you this year? Well, I suppose if we we were just sort of starting to seek into a higher rate of vaccination and then we were hit with the uh, the March budget, or the March spending review, uh, which was... Which was a bit of a low light. I mean, we did get the uh, a factory super deduction, uh, which is sort of based around our, our factory expensing uh, policy that we had before. Having said that, full expensing uh, of, of factory plant machinery is great, but they've actually now technically subsidized it with the extra 20% on top. So not sure how I feel about that in the long term. But uh, no, the, the March budget was 
was kind of doubling down on all the fears and concerns we, we had leading up to that point. Um, much more spending, obviously the, uh, the corporation tax rise being announced, making Britain less competitive, less of a, a hub for business and future. So yeah, not a not a huge not a huge highlight for me personally. I think the the super deduction specifically is an interesting one because when I first started at the ASI, one of the things that uh, one of our bosses, at least um, Madsen, said to me is you need to watch out for proposing a policy that is very, very good. And then it gets into the hands of government and they make it very, very bad. Now, I don't think this has happened with the, the super deduction. I think it was a, an excellent measure. I'm really glad that the government took it on. But the problem that I had with it at the time and I still do now is that it was always supposed to be temporary. Um, so my worry is, at least in the the kind of the next few years, you might see businesses shifting their investment, but not necessarily um, that sort of long-term boost to investment, GDP, economic growth and living standards that would be achieved if it was made more permanent. And for me, that's kind of symptomatic of a, a lot of kind of uh, government fiscal policy where they're not as concerned with you know the the theory and the long-term kind of effects it's like even something as as sound and as good as for expensing they've managed to make it so that oh and it's temporary and it's not necessarily it's more of a kind of attention grabbing vote winner that is going to be successful but I, I know this is the low light section but I, I realize I'm being especially pessimistic there it's definitely a uh, a positive development on that, and I'm glad that they did it. Yeah, I think the key fact that came out of the budget for me was this commitment to increase or, or, and something not decrease corporate tax rates, as was previously planned. Um, and then the claim that you know this this means the end of austerity. Well, it's actually just not true. Austerity in, can either mean increasing taxes or it can mean cutting spending. Um, so in fact, it was an actual continuation of an austerity. Um, mindset in which we have to make the state bigger rather than growing the size of the economy. But the issue is when you when you increase taxes, as the government's doing over the coming years, you're going out with a smaller economy and ultimately less revenue for the government and ultimately it make it more difficult to pay down the debt, which was the justification for increasing taxes. So it's, it's not going to be a particularly effective or smart strategy. It's going to be quite a damaging strategy, even if the factory tax was a nice sweetener there added in well it's it's not just that i have a negative i actually have several more negatives um but i'll put them under the, the banner of just generally the government passing or getting through a bunch of absolutely terrible laws um if you look at the kind of the legislative record when it's not been covid related this year and obviously it's a bit more sparse given uh, the pandemic you've got things like the the mad ad ban plan which i think the health and social care bill is currently in the the lords at the moment and that looks likely to get through in some form so banning um a total ban on all online advertising for junk food something we've bemoaned on this podcast many times before um and of course one that'll be especially familiar and a, a bugbear for you lesh the online safety bill um the recent joint committee report on that not really giving us any positive still looking like it's going to be a huge invasion of uh, free speech rights online uh, and then most recently and i think again we've talked about this on the podcast the borders bill which amongst other things creates a kind of two-tiered system for refugees where you're a legitimate refugee if you arrive on the say the afghan resettlement program that the government hasn't actually started yet um, but anyone else um, who arrives by any other means is going to be treated um, a lot worse by the uh, the current asylum system. So 
if you just look at the kind of the domestic agenda, I mean, we've talked about how the kind of economic side of things hasn't been very good um, with the corporate tax rises. But on other topics as well, there really isn't much that I can see, at least, that the government is doing that is positive. Now, that might not come as a surprise to our, our erstwhile libertarian listeners that governments tend to do bad things as opposed to good things. But it, it seems especially this year, like the sort of laws that the conservatives are looking at and, and focusing on when they're not focusing on COVID are paternalistic, anti-free speech and ruining the lives of people who are trying to escape countries that are, are ravaged by war and uh, and famine and poverty. So not really the sort of vibe that, that I'd be a fan of, to be honest, as a free marketer. Yeah, I mean, I'd say for me that the theme is really like a pretty a pretty bad year in terms of legislation with a few like hopeful caveats thrown in. I mean, I've been doing a bit of work on the Nationality and Borders Bill side of things, and we're trying to get an amendment introduced that would allow uh, Hong Kongers with a parent with access to the BNO visa scheme, which is another ASI policy, uh, to effectively allow them to access that scheme as well. Now, where that's going... I hear like positive noises from home office, but whether or not it actually gets introduced or not, I don't know. Um, but it's very much a case of a small positive for for a generally negative bill, I think. I, f- I feel like that's a sign of the times though, right? That instead of uh, our kind of work looking at how to introduce positive changes, we're trying to introduce positive changes within pretty bad overall laws, right? Like it's you know the the stuff that you're doing on um, BNO visa holders and and younger Hong Kongers rather is massively important. My concern is that it just like all of the other laws that are being passed at the moment or being looked at, it's just a way of mitigating damage. It's damage control rather than anything positive or anything that we might sit there and, and read in the newspaper and be like, oh, isn't it brilliant that the government's doing X and Y and Z? I have, I don't think I've had that moment. Yeah, maybe once or twice this year, and that's not good. That's not what uh, we should be doing. Kind of feel like they're the eye of Sauron, and we're trying to like slip in nice bits of nice amendments and nice legislation without them <laughs> noticing. Thank you, Lord Sauron. <laughs> like Lord Frost said at our Christmas party, think tanks, free market think tanks tend to do best when they're against the climate of opinion. So uh, hopefully, this will be a, <sighs> a bumper year for us if we can can reduce some of this damage that's been doing by the government. But I think the bigger problem is that politicians, and especially this government, constantly need to be seen to be doing something. So they need to be seen that they're, you know, making change and fighting back against things that they dislike when really they're causing more damage um, in a lot of ways than than they're preventing. Yeah, sadly, everything's fine is not a vote winner. <laughs> yeah, the, the premise for this government, if there's any kind of minor societal issue, uh, is to ask what the state can do to fix it. It's this assumption that whilst the state might not be 100% competent, in fact, I think there's a lot of realisation right now that the state is not particularly good at actually operating and functioning in a blatantly technocratic way. At the same time, there's this demand to do more, to, to intervene in more fields, try to fix more problems without any consideration that perhaps ideas should be limited uh, and carefully considered before being introduced um, to ensure that you actually achieve good outcomes rather than just let's throw every idea we have at the problem no matter the consequences. I will say, if I don't, if you guys don't mind me segueing into the, uh, into the next topic, uh, that there is some sort of like positive feedback from within Parliament. I mean, if we go forward to Tax Freedom Day, we had a pretty great turnout. I think it was 20 plus MPs coming out to bat for us. 
making the case for for sort of letting go post COVID and trying to get back to that, going for growth, lower taxes, higher productivity agenda that the government ostensibly had pre COVID. Um, so there's a, there is a glimmer of hope. I think. I think there's there's a sizable group of conservative MPs who understand the kind of the free market perspective and broadly share a lot of that. I think that there is an even larger group that will make the right noises, but actually when it comes down to specific policies are perhaps not as as sound as we'd like them to be. Um, they get the kind of the, the rhetoric and the ideas behind, you know, low taxes and, and deregulation and uh, a liberal uh, small state economy. But when push comes to shove and you get to an actual law, then th- th- they end up buckling uh, and, and kowtowing to the kind of pressure. Well, now on to something a little bit more positive, which is one of my uh, highlights of the year, which was Freedom Day in July. Um, I thought that marked quite a historic moment after what was quite a horrifying 15 months where the government had intervened so much in our lives. And um, the government basically said, we're going to roll the dice. We're going to re- allow clubs to reopen. It was delayed by a month. It was meant to be at the end of June um, and ended up being at the, towards the end of July. Um, but that basically meant the end of restrictions, the end of any kind of legal mandate on on people to, to prevent um, them being able to live their lives how they might choose and, and getting back. And I may have taken the opportunity that Sunday evening to, to partake in some uh, Freedom Day celebrations. And it was, uh, I, I suppose, the energy of it that was unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. Just just people happy to be back together and, and living life in, in the way it should be lived. Um, and I think for, for a long time, that was also a massive success as well. There were seen to be all these predictions about there were going to be loads of cases in the UK that there was, you know, on an ongoing basis, a pretty high number of cases, but the pressure on um, the NHS and the number of deaths remained consistently pretty low. And then as we've reached the end of the year, at least up until Omicron came along, the UK was doing better than much of the rest of Europe that tried to maintain restrictions over the summer period. Um, so it, it felt like it put not only epidemiologically did it put the UK in a pretty good position at the time, um, it also restored our freedoms and um, restored life to the way it, it was it was meant to be. Yeah, I think you're right, certainly, to kind of highlight that as one of the most important parts of, of the year, because I know on this podcast in, in the past, when we've, been, when we've t- talked about lockdowns and so on, we tend to kind of talk about it in fairly sanguine terms sometimes. But we shouldn't lose sight of just how important it is to be able to to go out and live your life in the way that you see fit. You can often get very caught up in the kind of public health discourse for understandable reasons, but you should never lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, you know, being able to go out, see your friends, go to pubs, clubs, is absolutely vital. Yeah, I think the, the, the general vibes that early summer were just great. I mean, after a, a hard lockdown three for a lot of us, you know, it was cold it was dark it was long um to kind of come back and have the summer and we had the euros right at that time which as a you know an adopter (laughs) of this country and its culture i just absolutely love so much i had so much fun watching england even though we didn't win um it was really great yeah like i said i I watched the the finals of the euros in a pub with other people and it, it was just the most amazing atmosphere um so I think to have that and to really appreciate it, it was a real high of the year. Um, I hope we don't look back on it as a another island in the storm, so to speak. I hope that we can say this was 
Freedom Day and this was when we stopped the restrictions and we won't be bringing them back in. Um, I'm, again, not optimistic. I don't want to end this high note on a low note. <laughs> but I'm not particularly optimistic. Um, so let's just think about how great... If nothing else, just show something is possible, um, which is there, there doesn't have to be a new normal. There doesn't always have to be restrictions. Um, and I think this is what frightens people quite a lot. Even some of us who might have been sympathetic to restrictions is that they cannot last forever. Um, they, they cannot continue as the norm. Um, we, we cannot live life under the, the constant um, threat or reality of, of lockdowns. And we have to find an alternative way to go about it. And, and it seemed like vaccines and other kind of treatments were just the way to do that. Uh, this is something that's kind of astounded me in, in recent weeks as well. I was uh, perhaps naively thinking that with the, the rise of Omicron, then the sort of people that were you know, alongside ourselves, um, fairly sympathetic towards lockdowns earlier on in the pandemic, that they'd realise that, hey, things are different now. Um, and there's a lot of factors at play that weren't at play earlier on in the pandemic. We've got our vaccines, we've got our, our boosters, we've got various uh, COVID treatments to reduce the lethality of the disease. Um, and that lockdowns now will simply delay things rather than actually ending up preventing a significant amount of deaths. Um, and yet, yeah, it doesn't seem like for a, a huge bunch of people that's really dawned on them. Um, and that's, that's extremely frustrating to me that it turns out that actually the people that I gave the benefit of the doubt to and that, oh, you're not just kind of, you know, public health paternalist maniacs. You, you're actually concerned with being rational here. It's like, no, no, they actually are just public health paternalist maniacs. <laughs> yeah, the, the worst fears had come true. Well, from a, what was meant to be a high note, but I think was a high note in terms of Freedom Day to a bit of a, another low note with you, Morgan. Uh, yeah, one of my big lows from the year, both from a US and a UK perspective, was the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, we've talked about it on the podcast before, so we don't have to go too in-depth, but you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't speak about it. The kind of shambolic withdrawal from Afghanistan, lack of international cooperation, lack of any forward planning, and as we've recently discovered, kind of some major, major uh, structural and cultural issues within the civil service resulted in a huge humanitarian crisis. And it is not only the low of this year, but I think it will have knock-on effects for many, many years to come. Yeah, there's something, I mean, I mentioned briefly earlier the fact that the UK still hasn't started the Afghan resettlement scheme. But as you say, Morgan, it's not just about our kind of response when it comes to the, the refugees coming out of Afghanistan. It was the initial response that was so badly handled by the civil service as well. The whistleblower stuff that came out very recently just makes for really kind of grim reading as just, just how kind of amateurish uh, a lot of our, our kind of operation was. I mean, you know, you could say partially that's due to the fact that it, it seemed to be a surprise to, to most people. But that in itself is, as well is a pretty pretty big condemnation of uh, of the sort of forward planning capabilities that we have when it comes to, to these sort of things. So yeah, I completely share that. And it was um, it's not something that we're just going to look back on at the end of this year, but in 10 years time, uh, when you know, we put ourselves in a situation where we'd given a sort of promise to the Afghan people um, that we would try and work with them and, and improve the, their country and their lives and their livelihoods. And we've just completely gone back on that with no notice or no advance warning. Yeah, exactly. And people say, oh, what, well, what did you want? Do you want troops to stay in there for 20, 30, 40 years? It's like, well, we're still in Germany. We're still in South Korea. We being the US mainly. But this is what happens when you completely... <laughs> tear down a country and you claim that you want to help them rebuild you can't then just leave and allow away, yeah. you know a power vacuum where the taliban takes over so yes we should have stayed 
um, because that's what you do. Risk of life to US and UK troops was incredibly low at this point. We hadn't had any severe casualties in years. And it's just that's just the commitment you make. Um, if you're trying to be nation builders, you have to actually end up building the nation. Yeah, one of the things that, that kind of came out to me with the, the Afghanistan withdrawal, I don't know my, my colleagues' personal opinions on kind of foreign intervention and whether they're the classic libertarian position or not. But this sort of thing where you, you have an intervention, it may or may not go successfully at first, but in 10, 20 years down the line, because of political pressure, and there's less of a kind of public appetite for military spending or, or whatnot, even if it is, as Morgan says, fairly, was fairly low amounts in Afghanistan, you have this domestic political incentive to not care. Um, and that's something that, that always worried me about interventions, not so much uh, the kind of effects in the short term, but whether or not any sort of government would actually have the commitment to stay and properly nation build for you know the next few decades, like uh, Morgan says, is kind of necessary for bringing about the sort of positive change that you can. And it's true, you know, we, we've done that as you say in in Germany, uh, we're still there, and we've done it in other places. But Afghanistan, just uh, for me at least, an example of where that went horribly wrong. I think that's separate to the decision to go in. I think this, yeah. the decision to enter Afghanistan is completely different from the decision to leave. I think you can separate those two yeah well it does feel like we had the sort of worst of both worlds right in that at best invading afghanistan could be seen as a as a necessary evil uh but then on the other side of that there was as you as you've said like no nation building so you, you go in you mess a place up but then just leave it in tatters uh and to me it kind of speaks to this worrying trend of western liberalism kind of retreating back uh, from its from its former frontiers, which is sad to see. I mean, I think we should be pretty unashamed about the reasons for going into Afghanistan. The, the getting rid of the Taliban, who had been directly responsible for harboring Al Qaeda, who had committed a terrorist act on U.S. soil. It seems pretty obvious to me that the world was a better place without Afghanistan being run by the Taliban. Um, and the, the fact is that that actually would make us safer as well at the same time. Al Qaeda not having somewhere to, to manage their operations. I, I think, though, at another level, you can think about this as a humanitarian tragedy. You can think about this, obviously, as now giving the Taliban back control of Afghanistan, having that terrorist state. But also, I think that the, the final point you're making there, John, is also very important, which is just the fact that this is a, a huge geostrategic embarrassment for the West. That This is very much something China used straight away and pointed to and said, well, if the US isn't staying in Afghanistan, then there's no way um, that they're going to be there to defend Taiwan. And quite frankly, it's believable. It's not clear that the US will be there to defend Taiwan if, if they're not willing to keep a relatively small presence in Afghanistan. And it makes you question what position the US wants to play um, and, and whether or not you still have the ability that the, the military might, which is the, the US government behind um, maintaining a rules-based global order led by liberal principles. Um, and unfortunately, you, in many respects, saw a turning point there. Of course, you also saw a turning point in the Biden presidency. Uh, it's, it's just notable the extent to which his suddenly after Afghanistan, his unfavorables outweighed his favorables. So more people started disliking the job he was doing, and it hasn't restored since then. Just the big embarrassment to the American psyche seems to be having an ongoing electoral effect on Biden, combined with all the other domestic shenanigans in, in the US context. Well, on that very pessimistic note, so we go to you, John, to brighten up our day. Ah, party conference 2021. 
I mean, for me, I my first conference. Did you did you enjoy dancing with? Uh, I didn't. I didn't go. What, what made party conference? So I great? I mean, what made it so good? Oh, well, I mean, for me, the first conference I'd ever done was in 2019, and I was looking forward to so many more. I mean, obviously, we had the the two year gap uh, in between the conferences, and I I think one of the first things that occurred to me, somewhat embarrassingly, at the start of the pandemic, was like the Midland Hotel is the kind of the big room with all the people in. And I was like, we'll just never do this again. That's it. Like, there's never going to be all these people crowded in a room drinking together again. And then to have that come back was really, really nice. But no, for me, I think the, the big highlight was was doing my housing panel. A lot of fun. It was really, really nice after that to kind of see street votes, uh, get a bit of truck with the government. I mean, we've heard, we've heard new Secretary of State for leveling up, Michael Gove, uh, make some pretty positive noises around that. So it felt like it was kind of, quite well connected to to one of those small positives coming out uh, from the government now. Um, on the topic of conferences, uh, can I chime in that we did a return to Labour Party conference, which was, uh, I think, another high of the year. You might have thought maybe it was a low, but no, it, it turned out to be a high. So I went down to Brighton and we had a panel um, called Do You Want to Win? with Stephen Bush, Katie Balls, Ben Gurren, Mike Harris, and Simon Gregory. I was told, indeed, Morgan, that your Labour Party conference panel was the best fringe event at conference. And it, it, it just apparently packed out room, standing room only, really interesting discussion in a way that you often don't get at party conferences with both kind of self-criticism, but a lot of, I guess, optimism about here's what a more kind of reasonable, electorally successful, policy smart Labour Party could achieve. When we announced this, we kind of got a lot of people asking, why are you going to Labour and telling them how to be better? It's like, because better opposition makes better policy. Um, and we should hopefully live in a world where you can look past party political lines and still say, I want a strong opposition because sometimes as we've seen with this government, they come out with bad policies that need to be challenged and it can't be up to us to, to be the official opposition. So having a Labour Party who actually provides some credible alternatives in some ways is good. And we actually had people come up to us and say, oh, I didn't know that I agreed with the ASI on these policies, like land value tax or refugees or whatever. So that was great. Yeah, there was even one MP, one conservative MP who emailed us back, who shall remain nameless when he said, uh, out the email inviting everyone to a Labour Party conference and the Conservative MP responded, no, I don't want to go to a panel about <laughs> Labour Party winning elections. I'm, I'm a Conservative MP. Fair enough, I, I suppose. I just wanted to say that's a small positive that uh, that I'd forgotten about, which is maybe the Labour Party is starting to suck a bit less these days. I mean, it was great to see Rachel Reeves mm -hmm. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think now, uh, saying that she preferred Adam Smith to Karl Marx, a very low bar, I know. Perhaps, perhaps they will adopt intergenerational inequality, building houses, and, uh, and lowering the tax burden as their, as their core tenants coming into the next general election. I'm not holding out hope. Well, we, did, we did have that bizarre situation earlier in the year where Starmer was coming out and saying about corporation tax increases, maybe now is not the best time for this. And it was kind of, you're living in a parallel world almost where you know, you think red is blue and blue is red. Uh, obviously, that that kind of narrative doesn't extend as far as we'd uh, as we'd perhaps like it to. But in on certain issues, it certainly seems like the the new Labour Party, in every sense, has improved. Just say new Labour by any chance. And whilst conference season may have been a high in general, of course, I think I'm going to move on to one of my personal lows this year, which was I think Boris's conference speech. I think I was generally pretty disappointed by the genuine vacuous nature of it. The the fact that he was 
making quite absurdist claims that have now basically been disproven that because there were wage increases um, caused by inflation and inflationary pressures, um, that everything would be okay. In fact, it's turned out that inflation has increased more than wages. So therefore, real wages have gone down. Unfortunately, that means that Boris's whole thing about a high wage economy seems to have lost out the key fact of you actually need a high real wage economy. So it seemed that speech, for me at least, was kind of symbolic of the moment in which we was really confirmed that, that Boris wasn't going to bother be standing for good kind of economic reform, for trying to get down taxes and, and reduce the, the, the burden of the state, that we'd really see kind of a big state laughing stock kind of a leader who, who wasn't really there to do anything serious, but there to crack a lot of jokes, get a lot of laughs, be an entertainer. Um, but wasn't willing to to do any of the, the kind of hard work that would actually make Britain a more prosperous place. I think more than the jokes and kind of the superstar nature of it, you know, Brand Boris was, he said some really, um, as we would say, economically illiterate things, but quite harmful things, especially about immigration and migrants, lowering living standards and keeping wages pushed down, kind of some rhetoric, which we've seen a lot, but, but to have on that very public and prominent platform was uncomfortable, I think, uh, to say the least. And I think that you kind of saw that with the business response. A lot of people were kind of who know how these things work and understand, you know, labor flows and economics can say that actually that's not true. That's a bit of a dog whistle. And um, businesses kind of really came out and said that and said, look, this isn't on us. This isn't because you know, we can't get foreign workers anymore. That's not That's not why uh, we're struggling here. Foreign workers are good for our economy and you've made it harder. And a lot of that was uh, a bit worrying to kind of see prime ministers so blatantly disregard the facts in, in favor of a, a party political dog whistle. It was in the midst of the kind of lorry driver shortages as well. You know, you couldn't mm-hmm. get a, a worse time to make a, such an incorrect point. And I remember us kind of sitting in Manchester station uh, and then getting on the train and, and writing the comment discussing you know, what we're going to say. And usually for these sort of things, we'll, we'll sit there and think, okay, what are the good things? What are the bad things and stuff? But I correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember us finding it very difficult to come up with anything positive uh, when it came to that speech. I mean, the, the only positive I could see that came out of it is that just as ASI was back at Labour Party conference, we were back on the front page of the Guardian, but uh, we, we shouldn't necessarily be there <laughs> if we had a functioning Conservative Party. <laughs> I was already feeling queasy from the night before. I was definitely feeling queasy after Boris's speech. I'll just... Hey. just <laughs> so, of course, we, we put out a statement saying Boris's rhetoric was bombastic, but vacuous and economically illiterate which I, I think spoke to something quite deep and meaningful and, and was extensively quoted. I think it was up in a billboard, you know, the Sky News Alert at Victoria Station. It was, as you said, Daniel, the front page of The Guardian, front page of City AM and, and Telegraph as well. It was featured across dozens of broadcast bulletins and uh, various local newspapers as well. And and we highlighted that kind of, kind of looking back to it now, that this was an agenda for levelling down to essentially planned high-tax, low-productivity economy, we talk about how he's hamstrunging the economy, how he's increasing taxes on a fragile recovery. We did really have a big go at him about the fact that shortages and um, rising prices cannot be blustered away with rhetoric about migrants. Um, this was the whole idea that, well, if we just restrict migrants, real wages will go up. Of course, that didn't happen. All we had was, was shortages. Of course, this isn't even just a British issue. This is what I found quite bizarre at the time, was there were shortages all over Europe as well, shortages all over the US, nothing to do with Brexit, nothing to do with the, purely the UK's new migration system. But to then want to take credit for something that is fundamentally bad, 
we, we haven't heard much of more of it recently, but it's fundamentally mm-hmm. not a good thing that prices are going up uh, and, and that wages are, are going up, not because of productivity improvements, but just purely because of inflation. Um, and then, of course, there's also that levelling up side of things, which I think is another point worth um, hammering home here is, you know, the government will claim their agenda is all about levelling up. But once again, it just it's just more vacuous. It was, I think we call it listing places and things that they produce. And that seems to be what levelling up's made of, out of so far. Um, John, do, do you think we have any more idea at the end of this year than the start of this year what levelling up actually means? I, I can't say that we do. I mean, that whole speech was so topsy-turvy, right? I mean, we had on one hand Boris saying that he wanted a, a high-wage uh, high productivity, low tax economy, all while making moves that did literally exactly the opposite. In terms of leveling up, I don't think the government really knows either. I think they, they keep sort of grasping at straws to try and find something that means leveling up. And I think the fact that they went for sort of higher wage, uh, higher wages for HGG drivers to be like, oh yeah, this is what leveling up is. It means it's it's having, having less migrant flows and, and labor shortages which is rising wages, which is leveling up. It's also absurd. Yeah, I mean, the fundamental problem is leveling up is a false goal. Regional inequality should not be a focus of government. You're inevitably going to have different different parts of the country with different levels of prosperity just based upon what their specialty is and and what they do and and what their focus is. And you're always going to have amalgamation effects in cities. Cities are always going to be richer than non-cities and and a financial hub like London is always going to be richer than the rest of the country. The the central and only question that should ever be opportunity. What opportunities are there for people to rise up, to get good jobs, to live quality lives? And that's often achieved by mobility, people being able to move to where they're most productive and prosperous. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is housing reform. If you can't get housing reform right, you're not going to have a more prosperous country. It's simple as that. You can't just redistribute from London to other parts of the country and say, tick, levelling up, done, as if that hasn't been attempted for 50, 60 years. I was seeing some stuff recently just about the extent to which previous levelling up agenda, when they were previously trying to move people um, and activity away from London, there was in fact a depopulation post-war out of London. Um, but it, some of that was not natural. Some of that was caused by things like the government banning building office spaces or building more houses in London because it would result in levelling up and, and activity elsewhere. It was complete and total nonsense. But that seems to be the way the government thinks that they can manage the economy, as Adam Smith said himself, moving around pieces on a chessboard without understanding the complexity of the system in which they're interfering. And you get that again and again from this government. Yeah, I just imagine an alien looking down at the UK and seeing people saying, OK, we've got this really great productive area here we've got um, areas that might have lower living standards elsewhere and what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and get people away from the place that's quite rich and has high living standards we're going to try and move them into the place of low living standard it just strikes you as kind of patently absurd right and yet as you say this is something a theme that's been going in government policy for for decades now rather than you know, the, the kind of importance of letting people have access to the sort of wealth creation opportunity that tends to be provided in, in cities uh, for various reasons. Now, obviously, people can, you know, choose to make those sort of trade-offs and it's perfectly possible to to make yourself uh, richer and, and better off and, and happier outside of a city. But you can't get over the fact that simply from brute reality, it's easier to, to raise living standards if you are surrounded by other people in a city. Well, now moving on to one last topic, hopefully a positive topic from you, Daniel. Yes, uh, my, my kind of final high for this year, um, and it's one that has consistently been the case for my whole time at the ASI, is 
our kind of our youth programs and specifically looking at the development of the next generation of free marketers and, and libertarians. And for me, that was that was really encapsulating the return Aww. to a physical version. Yeah, I know I'm being unusually wholesome um, for, the, for this podcast. Aww. But it was it was encapsulated by the return to a physical version of our Freedom Week seminar series in Cambridge uh, last year. Unfortunately, in the throes of lockdown, we had to host a, a virtual version of this, which was still absolutely excellent, and it was nice to see some some virtual attendees of that at some of our in person events a year later. But the basic premise is to try and get the the most talented, the the most bright uh, group of young free marketers and libertarians in the UK and indeed outside the UK in Europe and, and North America and elsewhere in to hear from some of the best academics in the world and really try and kindle that appreciation and that passion for uh, for classical liberal thinking and the importance of freedom and prosperity and it just for me it, it gets better every single year because you, you just start to see people who maybe at the beginning of their kind of intellectual journey on learning about free markets they might be you know first year or second year at uh, university and then you know I've been in the ASI for several years now and the past couple of years I've started to see people that initially came to Freedom Week crop up in various positions they might be working for an MP they might be a journalist uh, they might be running a business for example because of the kind of the enjoyment the experience that they had there amongst obviously other things that they're still fighting the good fight for free markets um, and the other part, I think, that, that really I, I enjoyed about this year um, and indeed last year was a wonderful crop of gap year interns, something that you know, the ASI, I think, is, is fairly unique amongst think tanks in doing is, is taking on uh, one or two gap year interns each year. And, you know, the, the current lot, one of them is is very nicely editing these podcasts uh, and she's very good at it. Thank you very much, Fiona. The other is absolutely excellent as well. Thank you, Charles. Uh, and the previous year as well we we had hannah and joe who are both just fantastic uh, people you could see grow throughout the year and and really kind of develop their understanding of and, and their particular interests so it's something that that brings me uh joy uh, and has done since i started working at the asi yeah i mean i i love the experience of, of heading down to freedom week this year coming down to give a, a brief little speech to a group of extremely intelligent capable deep thinking students who, you know, question after question, challenging me and, and my assumptions and my argument extremely well. And and I think then having some discussions with them afterwards and then going on and having a, a punt along the, the, the river cam um, afterwards with another one of the speakers joining us, uh, Daniel in the, in the boat, uh, Robin, it was, it was a really fun afternoon. I think that's where the kind of friendships are made uh, and the understanding is grown at, at these kind of really well put together um, events that, that the ASI does and as well as some of our friends in, in other organizations do as well to bring kind of these ideas to more people and, and ultimately as an educational charity um, uh, as part of the ASI is um, that's that's kind of core to our mission yeah I mean that was Couldn't my agree first more. one so I, I think everyone else has said it so well I mean it was just so wonderful to be there there's such a, a weirdly unique atmosphere uh, a lot of fun a lot of fun I think it's important to say as well as you know not to pat ourselves on our back too much because we do this every year but this year was special because a lot of these students have been shortchanged with their university experience so to be able to you know have in-person lectures to meet people their own age and and you know have the intellectual discussions but then also just have some fun like we went to the pub we had a barbecue you know we did punting all of that is 
really important to their development as uh, as young adults. So I think it's a point of pride for all of us that we're able to offer this every year with the IEA. I won a game of Catan, so that was a big highlight for me at Freedom Week. <laughs> you won? I love Catan. It's my favorite game. Did you win? Uh, I didn't realize did. you won. Congratulations. Like John, the only reason you won, though, is because I wasn't playing. So oh, <laughs> well, you know really what? I challenge you, Lesh. In the new year, I will beat you at Catan. So this is Matthew Lesh's last podcast with us. He will be leaving us in the new year to join our friends at the IA, which is obviously um, a big high for us and a big low for him. Um, but we will miss <laughs> Wait him very much. Wait a no, just thank you, Matthew, for all you've done for the ASI and the movement in general. You've been an invaluable member of this team, and we will miss you. Feels Aww, weird because I felt well. I was going to be like, I'm going to miss you so much, but then it's like you're, you're just down the road. So. I'm actually going to go off and cry quite a lot after this episode, Matt. So just to, just to let you know, that's Aww. how much you you'll be to back me. as a guest next time. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's been it's been a pleasure uh, both to co-host this podcast with Dan as as well as. The gazillion other things we all end up doing at the ASI as part of such an extraordinary team, and yeah, it's been it's basically <laughs> quite an immense three years from the kind of arriving at the time of Brexit chaos and Theresa May, if anyone remembers her, to uh, a <laughs> transition to Boris, a crazy programming of Parliament and election, and then years of COVID misery. But uh, I think we've managed to achieve so much as a team working extremely close-knit tight together and the the level of of impact and and influence uh we have not necessarily because of us but because of the, the power of the ideas and the power um of what what we're saying um to to people and and those who support us and, and the, including those who are listening to this podcast um is is quite extraordinary so um yeah it's been the absolute pleasure of lifetime so so thank you very much for for all You've, you've done and uh, supporting me and, and enabling me. Yeah, yeah. On that note, uh, thank you for listening to this final edition of the Pin Factory podcast with me, although we'll be back next year, mightier and stronger than ever before. Um, my name is Matthew Lesher, the head of research at the ASI. I've also been listening to my wonderful colleagues, John McDonald, who's our director of strategy, Morgan Shonamai, who's our director of operations, and Daniel Pryor, who has our head of programs. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please do. Uh, subscribe and review generously and tune in again next year for more banter analysis. <laughs>